It's five minutes after five o'clock and you are tuned into Moab's community radio station, KZMU. It's Monday. That means it's time for This Week in Moab. I'm your host, Molly Marcello. Thank you all for being here with us. And uh, today we have a guest who's going to take us to the highest peak in the world, the summit of Mount Everest in Nepal at a staggering 29,032 feet. And I'm sure every one of those feet takes uh, a lot of time, a lot of persistence, strength, both physically and mentally, and yeah, some investment as well. So uh, Moab locals Jason Ranstall and Matthew Fleischman recently returned from a once-in-a-lifetime trip to Everest. They have a presentation coming up at the Moab Library um, speaking about the expedition on Wednesday, August 2nd, 7 p.m. at the Grand County Public Library. To highlight the upcoming presentation, my guest tonight is Jason Ramsdell. Hello, Jason, and, and welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm on, honored to be here. Jason just found out that this interview was going to be live about <laughs> 20 seconds <Yes>. ago. <laughs> Pressure's on. And thank you, Jason. We appreciate it. So, you know, let's start at the beginning. You know, people might know you from your days with um, the National Park Service. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, being a ranger in our national parks? Like, what's, what's your background? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I have a career of 30 years in the National Park Service. And I uh, recently retired from the National Park Service, and it was a 30-year career. I did the first 10 years uh, in uh, interpretation or being a naturalist, and then the last 20 years was law enforcement with the National Park Service. And I focus mainly on EMS, uh, medical services, search and rescue, and basic emergency services. Mm -hmm. And I've worked at about 14 national parks. Uh, across the nation and I just retired uh, about two months before I went to Everest. So has Everest been something has it been something that's on your mind throughout those years? Yes I've been climbing uh, for a very long time and mountaineering for a really long time Mm -hmm. basically right out out of college Mm -hmm. and uh, it was a gradual process I started backpacking and then I started rock climbing and then I started mountaineering Mm -hmm. and uh, climbing mountains like Shasta and Rainier and Mount Hood and Colorado 14ers that are near here and um it just progressed and i've been climbing for a long time and when you're a mountaineer when you're a climber at least for me there's this there's this draw of everest and it's it's the highest peak it's the mother of all mountains and that's the name of the uh, the tibetan name is chomolungma and that means the mother of all mountains and it's that passion to go respect and to experience the mother of all mountains if you're a mountaineer and that's i've had this for a long time even before i started climbing i had this uh allure of everest and and my father would tell me about uh tenzing and and hillary and and mallory and irvine and and so in my history it's it's always been in the background um and then in the park service i had some opportunities to also do mountaineering patrols i did a patrol last year on denali 
uh, for the Park Service. And so I got to work and do search and rescue on Denali. And I just started to think, you know, now's the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it kind of prompted retirement even. I needed to retire uh, to kind of do it. It's hard to get two months off. Right. And so... Uh-huh. Uh, I decided now's the time. I have the time in for the park service, and why don't we retire right. and and do it now? Right. And uh, I'm not getting any younger, and and it, I better do this this now. So I retired. Two months later, I'm going to Everest. Wow! And you had to train. You had to you know get your body you know attuned to mountain climbing. You know how did you do that here in Moab? Well, I'm a firm believer. I've been training for mountains constantly for a long time. And, and I'm a firm believer that to train to climb mountains with a heavy pack, you have to climb mountains with a heavy pack. Mm-hmm. And it's basically doing uh, ev- uh, evolutions of altitude, up and down and up and down, carrying a heavy pack. That's at least how I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I run poorly <laughs> and slowly, <laughs> and uh, I don't like that type of exercise, but I can go all day and, mm-hmm. and climb and hike and mm-hmm. backpack and carry heavy pack up and right. down mountains, and that's the best way for me to train. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I started really training for Everest six months before it or so. I have a pretty good baseline, mm-hmm. and uh, so I just started six months before and doing a lot of elevation on the local trails in Moab, uh, Moab Rim, the Portal, Hidden Valley, and uh, up in the LaSalle's, and then over in Colorado as well. Right. And on one of those, um, you know, training trips, you ran into another local, Matthew Fleischman, who happened, amazingly enough, to be going the same days, same guiding company as you. Yes, and that's a crazy story. It's, it's just, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's mind-boggling to think about the small world there. Right. And uh, I'm hiking up Moab Rim, and uh, somebody's coming along, a guy coming up <laughs> with a big heavy pack, and I knew instantly uh-huh. that he's training. Right. And uh, I can tell, uh, because that's what I do to train, and I asked where he was going. He said Everest, and I'm like, no way. <laughs> and uh, he's from Everest, or excuse me, he's from Moab, mm-hmm. and he's going to Everest too. I'm like, wow, a small world. But it gets even crazier because he's going on the same trip, mm-hmm. same guided company, same dates. Right. And I was blown away. And so, and then after that, we started training together and uh, we became fast friends. Amazing. Now, can we talk a little bit about that? Because can you tell um, folks, you know, what's involved in not only do you need to train um, to hike to the summit of Mount Everest, but, you know, there's a fair amount of investment. I think I read, you know, an individual climber will spend at least $27,000 on the expedition. That's a little low. (laughs) That's a a little low. Okay. So what are the costs involved to do this? There's a lot of costs involved. Um, Pretty much to climb Mount Everest, you have to to join a guided company by law right. you have to yeah. go with nepali guides and sherpas and mm-hmm. um just the permit itself per person's eleven thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars that's just the permit but then there's the other costs of the travel the food the gear the oxygen right. all of that so it climbs quickly um, there's all different uh pay scale that you could go on you can go on ultra luxury guided companies that i was not interested in where they have 
coffee bars at base camp and masseuse and all these things that I was not interested in. And so you can go cheaper. The other thing I wanted to do was to go with a Nepali company. Mm. And I wanted the money to stay there. I wanted the money to stay in Nepal. It's a developing country. Mm. I wanted it to, to stay there. And I did not want a Western company. Mm-hmm. You can hire a Western company, but it's twice as expensive as mm. a Nepali company. And I'm, I'm really um, honored that I found a Nepali company mm. and they did an excellent job. And there's advantages. They know their country. They have connections. and uh, great connections with Sherpas and guides. Uh, So it is expensive. Um, I'm grateful that I saved a lot of money through Mm -hmm. the Park Service. I I scrimped and saved and uh, used that that money and savings, basically, to be able to go on this kind of of once-in-a-lifetime trip. Um, I'm also grateful to my grandfather who left me a little because he was so impressed with mountain climbing and mountaineering and he always heard about the stories about Mallory Mm -hmm. and Irvine in the 20s and uh, Tenzing and Hillary in the Mm -hmm. 50s so I'm uh, I had a few resources there that I'm I'm grateful for like you said it's once in a lifetime Mm -hmm. (laughs) now you prepared in Moab you also and I should mention to listeners um, Allison Hartford of the Moab Sun News um, wrote two great articles about um, this expedition one before you two went off and one after Mm -hmm. so if people want more on this definitely check those out now before the trip you had told Allison that you you were concerned, you know, you were excited, but you were concerned about two things. One was weather and one was mountain traffic. So I'm curious, you know, if you can share with us, you know, how that played out on the trip. Yeah, those two factors. Uh, after our first round of acclimation trips, we had a chance to go for the summit early on May 3rd, which is very early in the season. We were at Camp 2 doing our acclimation trips and uh typically you go back down and uh and then wait but we had this weather window and we were going to go for it uh the fixing team of sherpas was ahead of us and uh but what happened is that weather came in and stopped Mm -hmm. that and so we had to go back down. Everyone left camp too, and the winds were just too high. And it's funny, when we think weather, you think storms. But really, weather on Everest means the wind. Mm-hmm. If the wind's too high, you can't climb. It'll blow you off the mountain. So it can be clear, but it's frustrating because you need to go back down. And that's what happened. And so we went back down uh, and waited in base camp. And you have to have a lot of patience. It's really difficult. It's mentally draining and and difficult to wait and wait, and you are getting weaker and weaker, Mm. or you get sick. Um, So that was uh, unfortunate, Mm -hmm. but it's all part of the game is waiting and waiting. And we waited about 10 days or so for another weather window. And then we started the summit push. Um, We knew that there was going to be a weather window May 17th, And so we left uh, about five days before that to start the progression up to make the summit push, which is is about five days to do. Uh, So that's how weather affected us, as Mm -hmm. an example. Mm -hmm. Once we started that push, the weather held, and they predicted accurately about the weather and the weather window for us. Mm -hmm. The crowding is a concern. Mm -hmm. And um, as we talk about a little later, maybe from the last... um, 
camp south coal up to the summit we'll get back to that i think but yeah. uh there there is there's a lot of people mm-hmm. and i did not experience the really heavy heavy overcrowding like that happened in 2019 right. and 2020 those weather windows were so short and if the Mm -hmm. weather windows are short more people are trying to summit on a very tight schedule and that causes Mm -hmm. everyone to jam up our weather window was forecast to be longer so it spread people out it was still crowded but i don't think i don't consider it to be crazy overcrowded from what i saw it did affect us on the last day and we can chat about that uh, in a few minutes but But, uh, yeah, those are the two things that I was worried about, Mm -hmm. and luckily it all worked out for for me. You know, you mentioned, you know, how mentally difficult it was to be waiting um, Mm -hmm. before summiting. Did you expect any strain on mental health, Um, or were you just like, I got to train this for this physically, but... I didn't do probably enough mental training, and I always say, you know, whoever's going to Everest, if I had advice to give, Mm -hmm. you're probably physically fit. You know how to be physically Mm -hmm. fit. I was very physically fit. Everyone can probably be more physically fit, but it's the mental part that's really hard. It's Mm -hmm. hard to train for. I just didn't expect it to be that mentally tough. It's, It's, you have to be mentally positive about the weight about the weather about the food about your snoring tent mate whatever it may be that's being mentally positive Mm -hmm. but being mentally tough is a lot different Mm -hmm. and it's hard to train for that Mm -hmm. and it's just um so difficult meant it's so physically difficult that it becomes mentally difficult Mm -hmm. and that's that's the difference and uh, Mm -hmm. i wish i would have prepared more for that but it's hard to train for that and so right. at the end of the day it's so physically draining and difficult that it it's be, starts to become mentally difficult and draining mm. and you just need to persevere and endure and i'm still processing well how did i do that mm-hmm. i you know how did i just keep going and you want to turn around and you want to quit five or six ten times but you you don't and or at least i didn't and it's tough it's just mentally grueling Mm -hmm. uh, along with being physically grueling Mm -hmm. and if i would have trained for it a little more i think it would have been a little more enjoyable it's almost like you know how do you like you said how do you do that unless you're in that situation Mm -hmm. and can keep making those decisions yeah to stay you know mentally positive as you said yeah and you're with a guide and you have to keep up with their schedule you have to just go and go and go you're 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 going 10 12 hours a day at altitude and climbing and carrying heavy pack and you're moving so quick that you're not drinking and eating you're not taking care of yourself and you just get weaker and weaker Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's there's reasons for that they're trying to maybe beat the crowds or they're trying to uh, keep you moving through dangerous sections like the ice fall Um, and so you have to keep moving you just you don't have a lot of options and so you just you just keep going yeah 
Um, now, in the latest article from the Moab Sun News um, that Allie did, she reported that you did summit, but Matthew did not. Mm-hmm. You know, did you two have a series of conversations about that decision to make the summit? No, um, and I totally respect his decision. Yeah. And he probably made a right decision for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we haven't talked too much about it, but uh, maybe you should chat with him about that. And uh, But I honor and respect his decision about that. A lot of people decide not to go. Mm-hmm. And maybe I was the one that was maybe not as smart not to go um and it's hard for me and uh yeah but uh he made he made i'm really proud of him he made his altitude record Mm -hmm. and uh he was great companion to have and uh supportive and welcoming when i got back from the summit and uh you know i'm proud of him yeah, I mean, every person has to make their own individual decisions that are right for them, right, mm-hmm. in those moments. And, like, for context, you know, something that I was reminded of while preparing for this interview is that the area above Camp 4, which is the last camp until the summit, it's known as the death zone because it's above 26,000 feet, and that's where the air is too thin to survive for long without supplementary oxygen. Mm -hmm. So when you mentioned, you know, traffic jams, you know, that's where things can get dicey if you're waiting too long and your oxygen, um, you don't have enough oxygen. Right. You know, back to, to the summit, last summit push. Yeah. Um, it was so interesting that, uh, we'd already been climbing for 12 hours Mm -hmm. from camp three up to camp fours, 12 hours. Normally what happens is, is uh, climbers will rest for five hours, six hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and that didn't happen. And this is where maybe things uh, change for both Matthew and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had just had a cup of tea, had a quick meal, and then, you know, the sheriff sticks his head and says, let's go, we're going, get your boots on. And... I I was shocked. I didn't know that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just didn't have an option to me. There was no option. I'm just mm-hmm. like, well, okay, I'm going to go. It's been six weeks. I got one more night. I can, I'm going to try. Right. Maybe I'll turn around, but I'm going to try. And uh, I was just shocked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just... And that's, it wasn't an option not to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, you then do go into the dust zone. But I wasn't thinking of that. I was thinking I'm going to give it my best try mm-hmm. and uh, put one step in front of the other. Uh, Twelve more hours of climbing with no rest, to, you know, except for a short break at Camp 4 or the South Coal. Right. And uh, I just kept going one step in front of the other. But it was grueling. It was just grueling dehydrated exhausted Mm -hmm. but you i just kept going (laughs) um and so then i um i know about summit fever now and that's a really interesting topic Hmm. because i had a medical problem start at about twenty eight thousand five hundred Okay, I had a so medical, you still have ways oh, to yeah. go. I have. I had a medical issue that uh-huh. uh, I'll talk about more during sure. the presentation on Wednesday mm-hmm. that started that, uh, you know, it, it 
it was problematic mm -hmm. and I probably should have turned around mm -hmm. and I even wondered whether I was going to tell my Sherpa because I mm -hmm. knew oh man mm -hmm. I'm going to get turned around but I'm 300 feet from the top Yikes. and it's so grueling you mm -hmm. it's a lifetime trip you probably won't go back again or at least mm -hmm. I didn't think I was mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have the financial resources to do it again right. probably so I know about that now and uh but the Sherpa, the, oh, I can get you up there, we'll, we'll, we'll make it. And uh, I just, again, didn't really have an option. I'm, I'm going to go. I'm here. And, uh, but that's part of summit fever. And uh, so luckily, it didn't get worse, and I didn't have any further trouble at that time. I did later, again. Okay. But we'll talk about that in a few minutes, too. Yeah. But uh, that was about summit fever. I probably should have turned around. <laughs> But I didn't, and I kept going, and I'm proud I kept going. In hindsight, maybe it wasn't the smartest thing. You know, I'm so curious about, like, when you're in that position, you know, literal position at, you know, the highest peak in the world, your body is so affected, your mental state is so affected. Is summit fever, like, akin to kind of like narrowing the focus you said you didn't have an option you just kept going and it's like what is that line between like figuring out yeah i really shouldn't keep going or <laughs> i don't I need know to that on. takes a lot of experience right. and the medical problem i had at the time it was really scary but i could physically keep going mm -hmm. and so i yeah i'm still processing that but it, it is somewhat of a summit fever thing it is somewhat confidence mm -hmm. i was confident i could keep going but at the same time i was terrified i was terrified um but i just felt confidence that i can do it i didn't feel like i had an option i'm gonna keep going right. and um you know but if it was worse if it was a serious problem or you know i was exhausted which i wasn't i was physically okay mm -hmm. um but i just uh i just felt confident at that time at least i can keep going um and i think i would have had the wherewithal that if it was a more serious problem i probably would have turned around Right. I want to think that, but man, it's powerful. It is super powerful, mm -hmm. this summit fever, right. especially with Everest. Yeah. We're speaking with Jason Ramsdahl, who is a Moab local and recently got back from summit, the summit of Mount Everest. You know, I read that Nepal issued a record 463 permits for climbers for Everest this year, um, March through May, which is one of the climbing windows. And, you know, around the si same time that you, you probably didn't know this while you were on the mountain, but have since found out that this has been, you know, one of the deadliest years on record. That's true. I think it's 17 dead this year. Yeah. 17. Yeah. I read 12 people um, confirmed dead and five missing. So yes. presumed dead. Yes. You know, um, what do you, as someone who is there on the ground, you know, what are the factors at play um, when it comes to deaths on, on Everest? And were those on your mind when you were on um, the mountain? Like I said, I was terrified um, when this incident happened close to the summit. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, I felt I'm going to get down and I'm going to do it smart and I'm going to make it back down to base camp. Mm -hmm. uh, Backing up 
prior to the trip, you have to have that conversation with yourself or your loved ones, right? Because Mm -hmm. 300 people or so have died on Everest, and there's a lot of bodies still up there. Mm -hmm. And that's a fact of mountaineering. Uh, It's a fact you accept whether you're doing a Colorado 14 or Rainier or Denali or any other big mountain. It, It can happen. The difference is that on those mountains, you can usually get the body down Mm. but on Everest you can't it's almost impossible and a lot of people have such a hard time understanding that Mm. but we all accept that you don't want to put a Sherpa or a co team member or anyone else in jeopardy or in danger getting your body down Mm -hmm. and I think my wife Liz and I talked about that that you know I don't want to put anyone else in danger getting my body down Mm -hmm. why my you know I'm I'm gone it's just Mm -hmm. my body now um and so we all most climbers I have talked to I should say Mm -hmm. have that understanding that just leave me there Mm -hmm. and we passed yeah I passed several bodies Mm -hmm. and it's just part unfortunately it's part of the mountaineering game on Everest yeah um and something that you need to expect um sure yeah sure that didn't you know I've been in emergency services for 20 or 30 years and Mm -hmm. seeing a body is not a problem um but it's it makes you realize yeah this is serious this is serious and Everest is very dangerous with supplemental oxygen it doesn't matter with fixed lines it doesn't matter a lot of things can go wrong the weather you can run out of oxygen just get exhausted you can have a medical problem like i had there's just many things that can go wrong and i should say too you know it's not just climbers um who are vulnerable you know it's also sherpas too i know at least like half of the deaths on Everest they estimate are sherpas as well and they're amazing and mountaineering could not happen on Everest without Mm -hmm. the Sherpas and they're just inhuman almost on their strength and their ability and their their wisdom of the mountain and uh, they do all the uh, fixing of the line they do the route clearing through the Kumbu Icefall they haul heavy loads they cook for you they do all this stuff It, it just wouldn't happen for most climbers uh in the world sure professional climbers could probably do it without a sherpa but you wouldn't you would need you want them and need them and that's been the sherpas have been there for all the way back in the mallory days in the 20s and the hillary days uh in the 50s and uh i am grateful to them and we all need to be grateful to them and it's a dangerous dangerous job to them yeah um, you know, I had also read today that I believe it was an AP or a Reuters article um, where the director of Nepal's Department of Tourism was quoted as saying that the government was considering introducing a requirement for climbers to scale at least one um, 6,000 meter peak, which is about 19,000 feet in Nepal before attempting Everest as um, something to implement in the future. Yeah, I think something probably needs to be done. I had 25, 30 years of climbing experience. And uh, yes, I had not done an 8,000 meter peak before, but I had been on Denali several times, three Mm -hmm. trips to Denali, which is over 6,000 meters. Mm -hmm. And 
we saw uh, folks that should not have really been there. They had very little experience. They didn't know how to put crampons on. They didn't know how to use ascenders. Matthew has a funny story, uh, unfortunately funny, where he came up to a section of rope and there was a, a climber that put an ascender on backwards on the rope and he didn't even know how to use it. And that happens. It's there. It's real that there's folks that just want to, for whatever reason, go climb and they are not prepared or they don't have that background. Mm -hmm. And uh, it takes a lot of years of training and experience really to be on Everest. And I don't know what the limit should be. I don't know if it should be a 6,000 meter peak or it should be in Nepal. I'm not sure, and mm -hmm. I haven't thought through that, but the point is there's inexperienced people on the mountain. It does cause uh, a lot of problems. Right. And uh, there's people that uh, should not be there physically fit too. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know what the answer is, except there should be a little more stringent requirements, I think. You know, it's so hard because, you know, it's not to say that um, people with less experience um, mountaineering haven't made it to the summit and people with more experience have, you know. There's no, yeah, yeah there's right? no, there's people that have never put crampons on, but they make right, it. Right. There's people that have mm -hmm. tons of experience and die yeah. or don't make it. Right. It, it, it's interesting mm -hmm. how that happens. Right. And I don't know if we can really find out a formula. Right. You know, I came close to not making it. Uh, Matthew came close to making it but didn't mm -hmm. there's so many that do or don't I don't know what the rhyme or reason is really except for some things that are in your control or being physically fit being mentally tough and mentally prepared then you got the weather you got if you adapt well some people just don't adapt well mm -hmm. to altitude right. um, right. so and then I you know I I probably came close to to dying I I had this major problem that happened after I had summited, mm -hmm. I had come down. Um, you want to get out of that death zone, but you're so exhausted. We had been climbing, or I had been climbing, and the team and the Sherpas had been climbing for about 36 hours mm -hmm. with no rest, um, very little water, very little food, and I can't even explain how exhausted you are and mentally wrecked and just physically wrecked and uh but you sleep another night at south coal some teams try to get down but you're just so tired that it's dangerous to keep going down without some sleep so then the next morning i had this medical incident happen um and you know I'll talk about that on Wednesday, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, I'm pretty lucky to be alive mm -hmm. and, uh, it, it was difficult and I still had to get down. And again, there was no option. I, there's no rescue that can happen at right. 26,000 feet on the South coal. Uh, you just can't really rescue. And if I couldn't have walked, I don't know, maybe they would have left me for dead too. Um, but it, t it just took a lot of perseverance and confidence and, you know, I'm going to make it. I can walk and it's going to take a long time, but I'm going to get down. And with the help of the sh my Sherpa guide, uh, Pasong, and so, but it was close. It was really close. Uh, and I had a lot of doctors that told me, you know, you're one of the highest folks that have had this happen to you and survive yeah. in the world. And uh, 
you know, I could be paralyzed. I could be in a wheelchair. I could not be able to speak. I could be dead. But I'm grateful to be alive and to make it down, and I'm proud of that. I didn't want a big rescue attempt uh, at 26,000 or even at Camp 3, 24,000 or so. I wanted to get down as far as possible, and my whole career has been rescuing people, and I didn't want to get rescued, right? I just... I thought Searching I thought it was pride, you yeah. Know? <laughs> I thought it was the altitude, yeah. or thought it, it was mm-hmm. something that would go away if I get down. But mm-hmm. that's not what happened, mm-hmm. and it was a more serious, Thank major, you. seriously problem. And well, so, it sounds like you'll go into it at the presentation. It's on Wednesday yeah. at Grand County's Public Library at 7 p.m. Now, when you were able to, you know, contact your wife, you know, what did you say? <laughs> well, I broke the news to her slowly. <laughs> Um, I called her from base camp. They patched me through because I wanted to wish her a happy birthday because I summited on her birthday, uh, May 17th, which is her birthday. Mm -hmm. And I always thought it'd be a cool thing, but she said it was a terrible birthday. I was (laughs) up all night. I was worried. I knew you're on your summit push and it was a terrible birthday. And to me, I'm like, it's the coolest thing ever. I'm summiting on your birthday, but... Um, I broke it to her slowly that I had this medical problem. I'm going to have to be flown out, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm going to have to fly to Kathmandu and get medical attention. It could just be the altitude. You know, don't worry. Mm-hmm. And I'm relatively okay. Um, but I'm going to have to get out of here. And I couldn't. I had to be flown out of Camp 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just physically, because of this event, I couldn't get through the ice fall safely. And uh, I'm grateful to uh, Global Rescue, who was the insurance uh, travel rescue company that I had paid for and hired. And it was like clockwork. And I'm flown out of camp, too, uh, and in Kathmandu and in a hospital hours later. And uh, I'm grateful for that. And it worked like clockwork, luckily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, again, listeners, we're speaking with Jason Ramsdell, who's doing a presentation at Grand County's library this Wednesday. Are you doing it with, with Matthew as well? Um, Matthew, I believe, is going to be there. Okay, great. And, uh, yeah, he, I believe he's going to be there. And, okay. and uh, I'm sure I'm going to introduce him, and he's going to say a few things, what he'd like to, to add. And right. so I'm, I'm honored that he's going to be there with me. Okay, great. So he he'll he'll be there, and I'm sure adding um, more from his perspective of the trip. Too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's been a lot of interest, ironically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I'm surprised by that. I'm, I'm honored. My friends and family want to hear more about it, and the mm-hmm. community wants to hear more about it. Um, but this is Moab, you know, and you can get. 20 people or you can get 100 people and you never know the night before or the day of and uh we might uh i don't want to turn anyone away i worked hard on the presentation people are interested and so um we might add a second night actually which i i will offer to the community if i have to i don't want to turn anyone away Right. Yeah. So what, you know, what can people expect um, when they do show up for this presentation? Yeah, I wanted it to be half a history of Everest, Mm -hmm. some of travel log of what Mm -hmm. we did. My wife and I, she went to base camp with me and then Mm -hmm. went back out and I stayed five more weeks. I wanted it to be part of that. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be about the climb itself, about, um, uh, the adversity that I faced and how I made it through that. Mm -hmm. 
so and lessons learned and some inspiration maybe to some people and so it's it's a little of all of that if i pull it off <laughs> okay uh and uh it'll be slides and okay. uh, videos yeah oh nice and okay. some uh some visual aids yes okay. Great. Um, you know, I don't want to keep you here forever, Jason. I, I promised uh, 30 minutes, but we're going longer, of course. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Um, but, you know, you did tell the Moab Sun News in that um, first article that, you know, in addition to being worried about a few things, you were looking forward to culture and adventure. So how did those two things play out for you? Oh, the, the hike in is just spectacular. It's a world-class trip in itself, just getting to um, base camp just getting to base camp Mm -hmm. and you experience the culture of nepal and you go to tea houses and you're traveling through their country and the amazing spectacular views and uh, scenery um you know i'm an aspiring buddhist i call it and uh and you're in that buddhist culture and to me that was important Mm -hmm. personally to experience that and uh it was amazing to experience and to have that trip it's about 10 days to get to base camp and the trek itself is great and that's a worthwhile trip for anyone um if they're interested in that culture and Mm. and experience the himalaya yeah and that's something that your wife did with you right yes yeah it was a great uh, great trip bonding trip Uh um it was it's physically hard in itself just getting Uh to base camp which is at seventeen thousand five hundred feet yeah, that's nothing to sneeze at, yes. for sure. Um, Jason, thank you so much for being here with us. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention about this upcoming presentation at the library? Again, it's Wednesday, August 2nd at 7 p.m. I look forward to seeing the community and family and friends there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm honored to be on the show with you. Thank you. Oh, one more question. You know, what else are you going to do in retirement now that you went to the summit of Everest? Yeah, that's the big (laughs) trick. Uh, Well, I'm working with Grand County Search and Rescue. Uh I might do uh, Grand County uh, Emergency Medical Services. And I might just take some time off and figure out what I'm going to do next. Okay. And no other peaks right now. No, I need a rest. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here, Jason. Um, We're going to go now to hear an excerpt of an interview from our partners at KRCL in Salt Lake City. They recently interviewed um, a reporter from Ink Stick. Oh, I got it. It's a hard word for me to pronounce. Um, This publication um, reports on the military-industrial complex, and uh, reporter Taylor Barnes was recently in Utah looking for information on economic incentives now totaling more than $50 million for defense contractor Northrop Grumman. We're going to hear KRCL's Nick Burns and Lara Jones um, interview Taylor about their reporting. So stick with us. Taylor Barnes, hi. Hi, thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining us. You are a reporter with Ink Stick. I love that name. And before we get into your what brought you to Utah specifically, um, tell me a little bit about your work in Ink Stick. So thank you very much. 
Um, yeah, my name is Taylor Barnes, and I'm the field reporter for the Military Industrial Complex with Ixtic Media. We're a small nonprofit outlet, and we cover foreign affairs and national security uh, from a public interest perspective. So an important distinction is we, unlike many of the publications that cover national security, don't take any funding from defense contractors or government entities. And you're not in Washington, D.C., where the stories all come from guys in military suits. <clears throat> right. Absolutely. I really believe there is an important space for not just one, but hopefully one day many field reporters for this beat uh, to go to sort of the people and places tied up into and know, a nearly trillion dollar national security budget. And so thank you for being here. And thank you for coming to Utah. We were talking about the history here. The MX missile, of course, was something the LDS church opposed back in the day. And this station was young. Many people at the station opposed it. But now we see this strangely coming around again, where we're giving tens, well, we're not quite sure how much, but we're giving tens of millions of dollars to Northrop Grumman to evidently make rockets to carry more atomic warheads. Absolutely. Uh, so I sort of stumbled into this story late last year when I was going about uh, requesting economic development agreements for some major defense contractors. And the intercontinental ballistic missile that's being built here in Utah is a pretty prominent weapon for our community and a very controversial one. And I thought, oh, you know what, I'll go, I'll go request the economic development contract for it, see what it says, you know, what kind of salaries and wages are the workers supposed to make. And then I was very surprised when your government returned it to me in highly redacted form, including redacting the most sort of crucial part of the contract, which is how many jobs and at what salary does Northrop Grumman need to create in order to get up to $59 million in subsidies from uh, the state of Utah. So that's now led to a public records battle that's and involved And you'll be appearing before that here. You'll have that hearing tomorrow. Yes. You've got a couple local attorneys working pro bono to help you in Inkstick. Yes. Just pretty cool. I'm, I'm super. I'm really grateful. And it's been a lot of fun to work with them. Well, thanks for taking time out to join us because I know you flew here at like three in the morning or something. So <laughs> thank you. But and this is data, Nick, that they routinely release yes. on like films that seek incentive money. And you box know, warehouses, factor, box cardboard factories, yes. But in this case, evidently, I saw fifty-seven or fifty-nine million dollars was right. what was originally given. But jobs, I mean, they always want to talk about the average wage, which doesn't right. mean much because you could have one gajillionaire CEO right. and a whole bunch of minimum wage. They ought to do median. Absolutely. This is common in this. This is a common way to sort of game your wage numbers in economic development contracts because the average can be easily drawn up by a few executives. And should we be extra cynical because the Inland Port Board, which met in Spanish Fork just on Monday, gave them another, gave Northrop Grunman another incentive, wasn't on the agenda, no public discussion, vote to approve, with many, many thank yous to the Northrop Grumman executive who was there. And we don't know anything about this because it's in KRCL listeners are well aware of the inland port. But this was just more invisible money going to defense contractors in a state that at one point was kind of against atomic missiles. Right. And actually, it was a bit remarkable to me to find out that the, for example, the the subsidies for the intercontinental ballistic missile didn't have any sort of public comment. Um, when I covered a similar story about subsidies to Raytheon in North Carolina, Raytheon also being one of the top five defense contractors in the country, there was at least one, if somewhat perfunctory, but one indeed public hearing for people to get to comment. And it turned into a pretty raucous hearing because locals were indeed opposed. Yeah. And here we are. So Barb Guy, 
you know, you've been involved. I, if memory serves, you've been arrested many times at Nevada test sites. You've been involved <laughs> seriously in this issue. And I'm I'm fearful that, gosh, I don't want to go out on a limb here, but people of our age remember this. And I'm not sure younger people do so much. I'm not sure either. It's a good question. I really don't know. And I will say that um, I didn't do anything that thousands of Utahns didn't do. Um, there were there were, uh, uh, you know, there was a good army of us for a while there. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it felt right to well, put your body on the line. Worldwide protests from all over Europe, Germany, and the rest of Western yeah. Europe, all yeah. over the United States. Yeah. I mentioned earlier New York and Berlin, but there were massive protests. And we saw some movement with SALT and SALT too. We saw some treaty movement, didn't get rid of atomic weapons, but at least there was some movement I dare say we're going backwards if we're just secretly giving money to Northrop yeah. Grumman to do what I believe they euphemistically call Project Unity. Yes, <laughs> there's always there's always a, a, just a super evil name every test. Every look, Mary was talking about the 923 mm-hmm. about yeah. uh, test that uh, they always have a name, and there's uh, there. They're always. Um, but there's a book of these tests that I saw that tracks all the names. It's really hard yeah. to find a copy of it anymore, and uh, hmm. it labels all of them and the names, and then the places that were affected by yeah. the fallout. Yeah. And so, as our historian here, <laughs> um, oh, and sure. someone who also went out and protested and put your body on the line, as Nick was saying, oh. do you are you finding some uneasy deja vu happening here? Always, yeah. I mean, yes. Definitely, yes. It's it's familiar ground. Would you say that your peers, who may not have been at those sites getting arrested with you, are the ones now granting those subsidies? <laughs> There's some Oy. interesting, Oy. interesting. Uh, like, it's our peers. Yeah, truly. These policies and matters who you vote for. And my question is, where's the next generation upset about this issue? And um, how can folks get educated? I know you got lots of sites you want to reference for people. Well, I um, I don't know. I don't know. It's all it's all so overwhelming really. Yeah. It's it's Plowshares Fund is a, a group that uh, Yeah, yeah. That's where Mary Dixon is tonight in San Francisco introducing their screening of Oppenheimer and you are a Plowshares Fund grantee, I understand, right. Taylor. Right, right. And, um Go ahead. No, I I just wanted to add getting the younger generation caring about this issue. I'm a millennial. Um, I think part of the issue is just how, like the word Project Unity, which was sort of the code name for this economic development project, which is to me nuclear weapons in Utah. Um, there's so much sort of obfuscation and use of euphemistic or just completely irrelevant terms that keep the public out of the conversation. And one example of that, which I is a big uh, yeah, something I resist is uh, using the word modernization of the nuclear arsenal. I don't think any mm. young person understands what that means. That's If I heard that the United States is modernizing its nuclear arsenal, I would think they're polishing up their old nukes. Yeah. But that's not what's happening. Everything's being restocked, rebought anew, and it's... Uh, Contracts, know. lots of money. Yeah. In fact, I just pulled up. I was like, I think I have a UWIPA, Utah Inland Port Authority agenda. And it was sent to me. It says, updated agenda, 1141 yesterday. The meeting was at 2 in Spanish Fork. And I'm scrolling down, look, trying to see anything about Northrop Grumman. And item 7, it says, Northwest Quadrant Incentive Consideration. Mm-hmm. Presentation of Business Recruitment Incentive. That's all it says. Wow. So I have no idea who that is for. Well, and that, that is the Northrop opportunity to, to say... 
what I feel as a taxpayer of right. the state of Utah and speak up. So, yeah. so for your hearing in the morning, you mentioned what you got was heavily redacted. Yeah. We'd kind of like to know numbers. It's I live here. It's my tax money. Right. Um, it's Laura's tax money and Barb's. I know you're from out of state. But what is it you're hoping they will reveal? Just the numbers? Yeah. So they have redacted two portions of the contract. Um, the most, uh, you know, crucial, the heart of the contract is what does Northrop Grumman have to do in order to get these subsidies? And that's what they have uh, redacted. It's called Attachment B. And it is the a table of their job creation targets they have to create and the uh, what salary. And from what I can gather, I believe then that correlates to how much of the subsidy they get. How much of they, you know, did they only create 50% of these jobs? Did they create more? But we don't know. They redacted it. Um, so, you know, as you know, uh, job creation rhetoric is just very, very powerful for defense contractors. It's the way they communicate to members of Congress. Don't vote against the Pentagon budget because you'll be, you know, putting people uh, in your district in the unemployment line. Well, and that's something that's very creative on the part of defense contractors. If you think of the the boondockle, the F-35, bits of that airplane are yeah. made in 435 districts. Absolutely. So every single rep has constituents who are making a little bit of money. And you want to know why it costs so much? When widget A is made there and widget B is made here, it's crazy. Everyone um, gets a taste. Absolutely. So, Yeah, more than a taste with this kind of money. So I'm I'm really intrigued, though. Here you are, Taylor, you're doing this work. Again, you're you're independent. You're not sort of sucking up to the teat of the of the PR machine in Washington. And yet here we are in this proxy war in Ukraine. Almost all of our defense money is going there right now. And yet almost nobody in the media is talking about military industrial policy or as Eisenhower said, the military-industrial complex. And your reporting is right in the middle of that. Right, right. And it's on, pretty much only you. Right. <laughs> I, there are, thankfully, other people doing good work as well. But yeah, it's 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 almost kind of like the way that a fish doesn't know it lives in water. Uh, you know, Americans and our media, et cetera, we just don't talk about how we live in this tremendous military budget that gobbles up so much of our you know, pu- public resources um, it's just sort of the unsaid. And even Bernie Sanders voted for funding for the airplane because it's in his district, too. Right. I mean, everybody's over a barrel. And here, of course, we have Hill Air Force Base and everybody goes out on a limb for Hill. But it, I'm just I'm sort of shocked, but not that they did this so invisibly to give this money to them. And I did listen to the transcript of the meeting from Monday. Many, many thank yous to the Grumman people who were there who didn't have to speak. Um, Perfect match, that's a quote. Ecstatic to be able to work with them, another quote. Thank (laughs) yous, and to meet the mission of the Inland Port Authority. So people are thrilled with this invisible money. Um, And it, 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 I wish you luck in the morning. Have you had to go through this? You mentioned doing this kind of work in North Carolina where there was at least one public hearing. Did yeah. you have better luck getting info there? Yeah. So to be honest, uh, yeah, uh, North Carolina was more transparent than here. Okay. Uh, no trouble getting the original economic development agreement. That was just posted online in the county commissioner's notes. Um, local media has been following up now that it's become a, a hot button issue. Okay. Um, what happened with Raytheon in North Carolina, which I, I believe may very well be happening here, is that the, the subsidy spelled out in the contract is really just one piece of the puzzle. 
Um, so Raytheon in North Carolina was also getting transportation projects that served the plant on the public dime. They were getting uh, courses at community colleges to train their workers that the public was paying for. Um, so often the subsidy that you see in the contract really is just one of a part of a package. All right, let's, mm. let's play a little devil's advocate here because economic development is meant to create jobs. We do have a tech sector. We do have a long history, especially out of USU and our academic relationship with, with DARPA another government program. So it should be no surprise that Northrop, Northrop Grumman has come here and this is happening. My concern is about the balance. And that's why I want to bring Barb back in here, the balance. I'm guessing that's what you were, well, shutting down things was part of the mission in the 80s. But well, here that today, was about balance, yeah, that's about balance. Yeah. So talk about right. a bit about that then and what you are concerned about now. Well, um, then if I can put on my history hat for a minute, that I, one of the early things I remember doing was going to um, something in the um, uh, political science building at the U. Um, and it was a meeting about the Nevada nuclear test site. And it was an informational meeting for people who were concerned about what goes on there, went on there. And um, I went and a ton of people went. And this gentleman who I think had come to town as an organizer to um, you know, work on getting um, a good reaction from local people, um, looked in this room, and it was one of those rooms that um, there uh, uh, the little dividers that you can open up, and then you can open up another wow. one and another one, and and it was so filled with people, and the man was just stunned, and he said, "I the very first thing I want to say is, where on earth did everyone hear about this meeting?" And everyone went. KRCL. And uh, if you think about the time and the landscape of media, Nick, back Mm -hmm. then, how small it was, who controlled the microphones. You want to talk about mainstream media. Mm. I mean, part of KRCL's history is suing to get alternative voices onto the nightly news. Absolutely. And he was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He was absolutely stunned. And, um, And it was just a really energizing moment just because everybody you know, had the same the same response. And, and so we all kind of knew where we were going. But and today not, no. with social media, Nick, do you think we can, we're so fractured in our attention. Can we even get a room full of people like that anymore? Well, Taylor, I think of your reporting, which is incredibly long form. And I really enjoyed reading five, six, seven thousand words that you write. But how many people have the patience for that anymore? Right. Right. I, I do at least appreciate the way that we can get out our reporting in multiple forms. So you know what, if I put on Twitter that Northrop Grumman has the lowest unionization rate of all the top five defense contractors, it's merely 4%. You know, you can take that or you can go read a whole report about uh, dwindling union strength at the top five defense contractors. So we try to get it out in several different ways. So you have to be your own social media manager as well? Yes, our own audience editor. So print, <laughs> social media, hear Podcast. you out on the radio. <laughs> L- let's go back a minute to jobs because that's the pitch always. And even Bernie right. Sanders, as I mentioned, said that, that, oh, this is jobs. But it isn't all that great. I mean, these job numbers tend to tweak. They'll say, and again, even this Northrop Grumman, there was mentioned 500. And then at the the audio from the meeting on Monday, they talked about 100 and 250. Wow. But, but maybe those people wouldn't even work there all the time because we have another factory too. But often these numbers are really skewed, right? They're talking about somebody who graded the road, 
uh, or poured the concrete, not somebody who's going to get a lifelong job as a technician. Right, right. And this is common in these economic development agreements that the job numbers can be gamed or misleading. They can be inflated with temporary construction jobs. The Raytheon contract uh, in North Carolina headline, you know, the politicians who supported it spoke often about, quote, 800 jobs. And then when you looked at it, it was really, the actual contract looked like a factory that may employ about 500 people. And it's it's far from that still. Um, And then, you know, it's inflated with the temporary construction jobs. And then they just define some of the other jobs as, quote, bonus. Um, Bonus. Yeah. So I I don't know what's going on under attachment B of Northrop Grumman's contract. But anyhow, there's there's a lot of ways that those numbers can be gamed. Does your research look at all in like, what about if you took this 50 some million dollars that Northrop Grumman is getting and you spent it on a solar panel factory or, God forbid, I'll go out on a limb here, education. Right. Um, does your research look at could that money create more jobs elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. There's actually good research uh, about this from an economist named uh, Heidi Peltier at Brown University's Cost of War Project. And she sort of crunches the numbers about why defense spending tends to be a very poor job creator. It's capital intensive, i.e. weapons take a lot of stuff to make. Uh, it's not as labor intensive. And there's, you know, super salaries at the top with executive compensation, whereas areas like education and healthcare care uh, produce a lot more jobs for every dollar spent. And I, I think I, I want to mention one thing that maybe listeners are aware of, and this is about three years ago, the Utah House overwhelmingly passed a bill, something like 60 to 3 or something, passed a bill that would forbid this kind of incentivization yeah. of corporate funding. But it, it didn't pass. It didn't make it to the governor. But if you actually read the bill, it only took effect if all 50 states yeah. passed the same bill. So yeah. what a way to say we care when, right. when we, we don't. <laughs> yeah, it, it is still, you know, I, I think it is an, an interesting bill because it, it shows the, you know, that legislators are fed up with this and that they would want this, you know, race to the bottom to end. Um, but that they also feel like they're in a prisoner's dilemma where they can't back out until every state It's hard to out. pass up. And, you know, I can hear the state folks already, uh, Nick, ready to call or send an email saying, but you don't know that. Well, then show us the paperwork. <laughs> right. <laughs> show us the money, so to speak. I want to see the paperwork. I want to see where they're promising my tax dollars and at the expense of what other yeah. opportunities that come before their boards. And something else I wanted to add, in addition to, so the public didn't get to comment on this deal. And of course, the public would like to know how their tax dollars are being spent. And yep. um, But in addition to that, if the public could have commented, another important thing is deciding, do you want to incentivize a nuclear weapons plant as your neighbor? Because that puts a bullseye on your community. That's uh, that's how nuclear plan- war planning works. That means if... Zaporizhia, right? Exactly. <laughs> or that means if and when Russia and China ever decide that they are about to attack the U.S., they're going to attack every militarily relevant site to get a you know knock out our produce ability to produce nukes to nuke them back so having a bullseye in your community is often you know not very desirable again deja vu right barb absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. i'm kind of curious what you want from the community in terms of those folks who in the 80s were with you and came out i I I know we want that history right missile people nuclear test site people yeah it's it's time to dust off the boots and get back out there i think all right nick i got some headlines for everybody here in our little panel okay i just did a quick google search nuclear weapons hit news here we go first u.s nuclear sub docks in south korea since 1981 here's another one yep that's yesterday and then north korea launches ballistic missiles after u.s nuclear capable sub arrives 
in South Korea just yesterday. And we still don't know what's going on with the U.S. servicemen who rushed across the DMZ <laughs> into the arms of North Korea. And I'm just kind of curious, this balance that we've talked about in terms of community and bullseye and do we want to spend our money that way, national security, which is a big selling point for these projects. So I'm kind of curious, Nick, where the reporting goes next. Yeah. In terms of, I mean, you're younger, up and coming. You're into this work now. We want this work to carry on. So, I mean, Laura, that's a really good question. Where where does it go? I mean, tomorrow you've got this hearing. Hopefully you'll learn something more. Right. Right. But what would you hope that would spark? I mean, it's too late to kill this, I think, unless right. people really want to come together a la 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I... I think my generation, like I said, I'm a millennial. I uh, came of age and graduated into the Great Recession. Sort of unemployment, underemployment is a theme that resonates a lot with a lot of us. Um, so yeah, I think sort of interrogating the job creation myth in uh, in the defense industry is yeah an important one going forward. And yeah, uh, I, I it would be it would be nice to see you know governments and public officials you know, use more accurate language when they discuss what's going on rather than, you know, we've incentivized um, a prestigious aerospace company, we've subsidized a nuclear weapons maker. So maybe that we can at least change some of the language and that tone that's, you know, more accessible and that can really clue the public into what's going on. Well, thank you. As we said earlier, not very many people are doing this kind of work that you're doing, right? Certainly not reporting from this angle. So what's next? What else are you working on? I mean, this hearing is tomorrow. Hopefully you'll get some more grandma results. Right. And there'll be more to report on and maybe people will step up. But what else are you working on? So I actually also, I would love if people could check out, uh, we just published a big investigation. We've published really two of them. Um, into sort of labor and unions in the defense industry. So major defense contractors, the big five, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, uh, they have benefited from a perception amongst politicians that they're, quote, highly unionized, but that perception is several decades out of date. So Mm. we sort of busted that myth at ink stick. We dug deep into their SEC filings, found their union data. Like I mentioned, Northrop Grumman is the lowest of the big five. It's merely 4%. Um, so you can check out our investigation, Union Strength Dwindles at Top Defense Contractors. And I think this is hopefully, you know, at a, at a moment when the country is really sort of reasserting its uh, its labor rights, I think understanding that there's a downward trend and that these top, you know, the top corporate recipients of taxpayer money are busting their unions. Right. I hope, uh, yeah. I wonder if we can make a connection there to why <clears throat> Utah seems a good place to get an incentive, a nice right-to-work state right. with relatively low rates of unionization. Absolutely. Yeah. And a I've, young workforce. So really, actually, that's why I came into this contract. I was working on a story that also came out, uh, in fact, just today, um, about defense contractors favoring right-to-work states for their expansions and relocations. And I thought, oh, you know, the, the new ICBM, that's a really prominent and important weapon. Let me go see what kind of wages those workers are making. And then I was very surprised when your government just threw a big black box over that page. <laughs> so we can't even find out how much people who are building these weapons make. Right, right. Because that's even, that's a secret too. Right. Even though, in, in reality, actually, Northrop Grumman is publishing those salaries on their website uh, in their job recruitment. But, you know, the the standards that your government is holding them to um, is what they've redacted from the contract. And, of course, what they're publishing might not be exactly what they're ultimately paying. Right. So, Barb, what's next for this history project in terms of activism? 
I don't know. I mean, it's it's a, an, another door. It's like a mansion, this history project <laughs> with doors, and you just don't know what's going to be behind there. But of course, of course, activism is a tremendously big and important part of KRCL. Every kind of activism, um, when you look at um, the names of old programs, the Handicapables program, we had a DJ who was blind who uh, did a program and trained other blind people to do programs at the station. And just any constituency you can name that had trouble finding their place has found it at KRCL. I'm I'm reminded of when I first started here, there had been a show, an LGBT plus pro show, and I forget the name of it, but there was an underwriter who came to the station and said, well, I'd be happy to underwrite if you'd kill that show. Mm. Like yeah, the show's the point, not you, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, and that's so the that, history of Kansas. That didn't happen, too. obviously. But Taylor, no. where can folks find more? Because I think there's a Substack involved, right? Yes, thank you. We actually just launched a Substack. So as you probably know, social media is a bit of a fraught uh, territory right now. <laughs> Twitter is a mess, <laughs> and you know, Spreads it's all the time, baby. <laughs> and it's of course it's both funny and it's also a shame because if I think it's a downfall of Twitter benefits sort of the more the big players in the media scenes the cnn's the new york times that are go-to places but for those of us in sort of the nonprofit media you know the more uh public interest small upstart uh, you know innovative different kinds of media we really did rely a lot on social media so therefore i think a lot of outlets are turning to newsletters as a way to reach their hmm. you know reach their readers directly bypass social media so we've started a Substack. stack okay. um, my Substack is military industrial america um, Inkstick also has a general Substack for our, you know, weekly headlines. Yeah, and our first one went out today. I'd love if you check it out. Okay, that's an excerpt of a conversation that our partners at KRCL had. Um, they were speaking with Taylor Barnes, who is a military industrial complex reporter um, with the publication Ink Stick. You've been tuned into This Week in Moab. I'm Molly Marcello. Thank you to KRCL for that interview. And um, thanks to Jason Ramsdell, who we heard from earlier in the program. Um, he has a presentation coming up at the Grand County Public Library Wednesday at 7, all about his recent expedition to Mount Everest. Um, and you can find more on that at the library's website at moablibrary.org. All right, coming up is our 6 p.m. programming. Stay tuned for Word of the Day, KZMU News, and Liner Notes.